Now open in the Bibles that you brought to the Grand Canyon of Scripture, as it is sometimes called the Book of Ephesians. Grand Canyon because you get a great view of your salvation from this book. The book tells us about the wealth of the believer, who we are and what we have in Christ. By the way, that phrase, in Christ, Paul writes that phrase 27 times in this book alone. So it tells you your position. And because you are in Christ, that's how God views you, not in you, not in yourself with your flaws, but in Christ. Great place to be. Because you're in Christ, and that's how God sees you, there's certain things that come with the package. It's a package deal, you might say. You get salvation, but so much more. Spiritual blessings that come on top of that, and we covered briefly a few of those in our introduction last week. The second part of the book talks about the walk of the believer. If this is who you are in Christ, if, if this is what you have in Christ, how you live should reflect who you are and what you have. Or else, we're hypocrites. So the wealth, who we are, what we have, the walk, what we ought to do because of who we are and what we have. And the third part of the book is the warfare of the believer. If you know who you are and what you have, and you act accordingly, that is, you really get serious about your walk with the Lord, well, there's going to be some problems. You're going to be a target of Satan. And because of that, you need to know how to fight. And the last part of the book will show you how to have a great fight with the devil and how to win, how to get victory over it. So that's why it's called the Grand Canyon. You get a good view of your salvation from the book of Ephesians. Years ago in Florence, Italy, the place and the time of the Renaissance when great painters and sculptors abounded in that town, it is said that a huge block of marble was sent from the famous Carrara Quarries, the place of the best marble in all of Italy, and the stone was sent to Florence that one of the great artisans might sculpt a work of art. It was brought to the town, brought to a churchyard. One of the great sculptors of the town named Donatello looked at it and rejected the stone because he said it was flawed, imperfect. Rejected. I want a perfect stone, he mused. Other artisans came and they also rejected it. Finally, one artist looked it over and he smiled and he was said to have remarked, there is an angel trapped inside and I must set it free. And so this artist went to work on that great piece of marble and he worked two years on it. And in the year 1504, that artist, Michelangelo, unveiled what is considered his most famous work of art, the Statue of David, which is still seen in Florence, Italy today in a museum, and a replica stands in the great courtyard of that church. You see, one looked at the stone and saw the imperfections, the flaws. Another artist, a greater artist, saw the possibilities, the potential. God looks at you not like the first, but like the second. You might look at you, your husband might look at you, your wife might look at you and say, imperfect, flawed, and even might say, rejected. God looks at you, sees your flawed personality, but also sees that you are full of potential. And he looks at your life and he says, ooh, what I could do with you if I could get my hands on you. And so once you come to Christ and you say, Lord, take my life, you become a work in progress. And aren't you glad you're in progress? I'm glad the work isn't over because honestly, I look at my life and there's a lot, there's a lot of territory God still has to cover. 
But I'm so glad that I'm a work in progress and that ultimately it will lead to a work of art. That you'll get to in chapter 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Poema is the Greek, a work of art. So God the artist has in his mind a finished product. You don't see it yet, but you're a work in progress. I think of the disciples. Jesus chose those 12 to be apostles out of the many disciples that followed him. And I, honestly, if I were to pick a staff, I wouldn't have picked those guys. But then, no doubt, they wouldn't have picked me either. Jesus, when he picked Peter, knew that Peter would deny him. Jesus, when he picked Judas, knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus, when he picked Thomas, knew that Thomas would doubt him. Yet he chose them all, picked them all. And Peter went on to be a great spokesman, a great apostle, a great teacher, and a couple of books of the Bible are attributed to him, and the Gospel of Mark is really attributed to Peter. Mark got his information from Peter. Thomas doubted, but later on Thomas became the great missionary to India. And a hill still bears the markings of that first visit, a remembrance of such. In chapter 1, we went down to verse 7 last week, and we looked at part of our wealth in Christ. We're going to sort of finish that up tonight. But just to refresh your memory and mind, there are a list of spiritual benefits, spiritual blessings in Christ in heavenly places. We covered the territory, but by way of review, look at them. First of all, in verse 4, he chose us. Second, in verse 5, he adopted us. And we told you that means to give somebody the rights as an adult son, meaning you're born into the family of God, but God regards you as an adult child thereby conferring the inheritance on you now so that you can at least in part enjoy the riches in the inheritance now. Third, he accepted us. We try to make ourselves acceptable to God. We cannot. It's only when we're, what's the key phrase? In Christ that we are acceptable to God by what Christ did for us. We're accepted. Next, we have been redeemed, verse 7, and as was mentioned on the video I just saw, that's the language of the slave trade. Half of the Roman Empire were slaves, and it was possible for you to actually buy a slave and then set it free. If you did that, you would redeem the slave. You would buy its freedom or his or her freedom. We have been redeemed. And finally, it's all tied to also in verse 7, we have been forgiven. We have redemption, verse 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You see the package deal that you get when you come to Jesus Christ and ask him by his blood to forgive you of all your sins? Forgiven means forgiven. You remember how on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they would take two goats. One would have its throat slashed, its blood sprinkled. The second goat, they would lay their hands upon this animal as if to confer all of their sins on the head of a goat. And this second goat, known as the scapegoat, was let loose out in the Judean desert. And they watched and they watched until the goat went into the distance and they saw it no more, reminiscent of that animal bearing our sins and taking them far away so that we can't see them. Psalm 103, as far as east is from the west, that is as far as God has removed our iniquities from us. Forgiveness in Christ, more complete, more full than anything in the Old Testament. Now, look at verse 8. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure by which he purposed in himself. Just a key word to keep in mind. I'm not going to expound on it here, but more later. You see the word mystery? That's also an important word in this book. Every single chapter of this book, 
develops the idea of a mystery. God is letting you in on a secret, so to speak. Now, mystery here doesn't necessarily mean unfathomable. It means something that was hidden in the past and now is known or revealed in the present. And we, we in part touched on that mystery last week. We gave you the theme of the book, A New Society, how that God places us in Christ so we have a new life whereby we are placed in a new family with new standards and a new capacity. That's really the theme of the book. We're a new culture, a new counterculture, God's counterculture. That's part of the mystery. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Something to notice in chapter 1. The Trinity, all three members of the Trinity are involved in your salvation. The Father chose you, we read here again in verse 11, but also in verse 4, he chose us before the foundation of the world. The Son bought you, redeemed you with his own blood, verse 7. And we'll go on and we'll read that the Holy Spirit sealed us. Verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you might look at it this way. As far as God the Father is concerned, you were saved in his mind, in his plan and purpose, before he created the world. As far as the Son of God, Jesus, was concerned, you were saved when he put himself up on a cross or allowed himself to die for your sins. But as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned... You were saved when you responded to his conviction on your heart that you needed Jesus and you received him in your heart. and You said, come into my life. It was a choice you made, but it was a choice God made before you were ever born. That's part of the mystery. Now, again, we're getting into some things that, that we mentioned last week. It caused you to walk away from them and go, huh? What? How does that work? I am going to provide for you tonight some answers, I hope. But I am not going to answer the question of the mystery. I'm not going to answer the question that these texts raise in total. I may raise in your mind more questions than answer, and my answer to that will be, you got to learn to live with it. You think, Skip, that's not a very satisfying note. Well, actually it is, and I hope you'll see why. I hope you'll see why. If you notice, just notice in verse 4, he chose us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, having predestined us. Notice that again. And then look in verse 11 where we are tonight. In whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. One of the first questions would, would obviously be, why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? I've met some people and I've wondered that very question. Why, why did you choose that person, Lord? I never would have. I look at my own life and I often wonder, Lord, why, why did you pick me to be on your team? What merit did God see in you? What goodness did God see in you that he would choose you to be in his family? Now, I hope the answer doesn't too terribly disappoint you, but absolutely nothing. God saw nothing in terms of your merit or your goodness to choose you. The answer lies wholly upon his character. See, did you notice something in verse 5? that it's according to the good pleasure of his will? Or in other words, because he wanted to. And did you notice in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace? And in verse 9, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. 
And in verse 11 about predestination, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen, God chose you salvationally for the same reason God chose Israel theocratically. Remember in Deuteronomy 7, God says to the children of Israel, I did not choose you nor set my love upon you because you were greater than all the other nations, for you are the least among the nations. But because the Lord your God loves you and swore an oath to your fathers. God is saying, I love you because I love you. I choose to love you because I choose to love you. And because I made a promise a long time ago that I would love you. So don't think we're a great and mighty nation. God says, you're a tiny speck of dust, but I love you. Now, you might scratch your head and say, I don't get it. I don't either, but I ain't fighting it. I'm enjoying it. As I mentioned last week, I rejoice that God chose me. Why should that, like, get me down or cause me to just get all flustered? I get excited. Now, we read verses 9 through 11. And I just sort of draw your attention to that word predestined because we have a problem. How is it that God chose us? Did we make the choice? Did we make a choice to follow Christ? Well, yeah. But did God make the choice before we made the choice? Well, yeah. So it almost sounds like, follow me, we have a conflict of choices here. When it says, God chose you before you were born, verse 12, it says that we trusted in Christ, as does verse 13. So we have two choices going on that seem to be contradictory. There are some who teach what is called irresistible grace. It's a strong Calvinistic position. Have you heard of irresistible grace? That means, really, you can't do anything about your salvation. Because you are depraved and have no ability to make any kind of spiritual choice towards salvation because of that condition, God irresistibly, with or without your consent, draws you to himself. Now, what that basically means is, if, if you're dealing with somebody who's been pre-selected to be saved, you can say, well, I've got good news for you. Even if you're a heathen now, you're going to be saved. You've got no choice. God will irresistibly draw you to himself. But it would also mean that you would say to an unbeliever who doesn't, even if you want to be saved, you can't be saved. And this camp will sometimes get very angry at evangelists who preach the gospel. I see these characters standing in front of Billy Graham crusades with banners and posters picketing the crusade. Because they say, you're doing people a disservice, you are giving false assurance to some people in the crowd that God has not ordained to salvation, but ordained to damnation. So for you to stand up there and say, now that you've received Christ by your own choice as your Lord and Savior, you're going to go to heaven, they'll say, you can't do that. Because maybe God didn't choose them for heaven. Maybe God chose them for hell. They don't have any choice. I always want to rip this. When I see their sign, I want to rip the sign up and their literature. And Well, one time we did, actually. <laughs> now, it's tied to another teaching. Limited atonement, which teaches that God sent Jesus to die for the sins of only the elect of only the elect. He didn't die for the sins of the world. He died for the sins of those who would be saved. Why would God waste his blood, the blood of his son? So there's irresistible grace and limited atonement. Now, I have a problem with these two texts for obvious reasons. One of them would be, let's see, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And let's see, I have another problem with it. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 2. In Christ is the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, said John, 
but for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. But there's tension between verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13. And I want you to notice the tension. You know, don't say, ah, who cares about this? Care about it. Care about it. We've been predestined, and we've been chosen in Christ as part of that, as we've already seen before. God created the heavens and the earth. But in verse 12, we who first trusted in Christ, and in verse 13, in him you also trusted. So we have a tension between choices, God's sovereign choice and your choice on earth as a human. Now, in the scripture, on one hand, you have these frequent commands appealing to people's choice. For instance, what was the first message John the Baptist and Jesus ever preached? Repent, he said. Repent. You turn. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the last message of the Bible? Whosoever will, let him come and drink freely of the waters of the river of life. Or the words of Jesus, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is an appeal to the will of man. Yes? Follow me? Am I making sense? Is this confusing? Makes sense? Okay. I'm getting some blank stares, so I want to make sure. (laughs) On the other hand, we not only have frequent appeals and commands to unbelievers to make a choice, but we have frequent demonstration that it's not our choice all the time, but God's choice is involved. Not the least of being what Jesus said to his apostles, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you should bear forth fruit. Or John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And then this one, we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It would seem like we have an irreconcilable problem. And I will admit, I will admit, from a human perspective, we do. You know what we have? We have something known as an antinomy. And let me describe. An antinomy means that we have two conclusions, both of which seem like they contradict each other. The conclusion is that I chose Jesus to be my Lord and Savior in 1973 in July. But the other conclusion, as I look at the scripture, is that I didn't choose him. He chose me, and I've been pre-selected before birth. It's God's sovereign choice. Which are true? Which is true? Both. You say, oh, but you just mentioned that there's an irreconcilable difference, an antinomy. Exactly. But I can also demonstrate that we live with such antinomies every single day. In physics, there is an antinomy with, with light. You see, we can prove scientifically that light is made up of waves. It travels in wavelengths. All radiation does. There's short, medium, and long wave radiation. But we can also prove scientifically that light is particle matter. However, given both of those observations and conclusions, we cannot readily understand how something can be both particle and both wave. Yet they are. And we live with it. And we seem to get by with it okay. So here's my suggestion to you. You've got the sovereign election of God, the free will of man. Don't go home and lose sleep over it. Don't get bummed out about it. Don't go get in long theological arguments with everybody you can find because they've been doing it for 2,000 years and they're still bummed out at each other. Does that give you a little clue? The followers of John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius are both arguing about this. They haven't figured it out yet. So Skip Heitzig doesn't lose sleep over this issue. See, I look at it this way. We need the tension. We need the tension. Ever been to San Francisco and seen the Golden Gate Bridge? It's called a suspension bridge. It exists by pressure pulling, two opposite pressures pulling on each other, and it's the pressure that has created, the tension that has created, that causes that bridge to stand. If you remove the pressure, it will fall. And you know what? The New Testament doesn't even ever seek to clear up this issue. In fact, sometimes you will find both doctrines taught in the same chapter, 
by the same author, sometimes, get this, in the same verse, without any explanation. Example, Jesus in John 6 said, All that the Father has given me will come to me. That's divine election. And all those who come to me I will in no wise cast out. That's free choice. Same person, Jesus said it, same verse. Two truths, married together, live with the tension happily. Can you figure it out? No. You know why? Because you're a human. And you're talking about God. And if we could figure out God, we would be God. So you have to reach some point where you go, I don't get it. I don't need to get it. I'm happy with that. I'm going to enjoy it. Chosen, predestined, great, awesome. Verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. You heard the gospel. You responded. You made the choice. The gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now that's the, the last thing that he mentions in this chapter as being a spiritual blessing. You were chosen. You were adopted. You were accepted, you were redeemed, you were forgiven. Now he says you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You need to know what that means. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see, what that implies is two things. Ownership. He owns you. He's put a seal of ownership upon you. And his ability to keep you. You're marked, you're sealed, he owns you, and he will keep you. Security. Secure. You're secure because you're, what's the magic phrase you are? In Christ. And that's mentioned a lot. In Christ, in him, in whom. And as a proof, God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. He owns you, and you will be secure. A long time ago, 2,000 years ago, when somebody bought something, they would prove their ownership by taking usually a ring called a signet ring and some wax, and they would melt the wax on the item with a band that went across or around the item purchased. And then the person would take the signet ring of the owner, and it could be done by a broker, but you would take the ring and you'd impress the ring on the wax, and it would form an impression of the ring that was used to make the seal. Hence, when you looked at it, you go, oh, that's the seal of so-and-so. That's the one who bought it. That's the one who owns it. So that when it would go from here to there, reaching its destination, somebody could look and say, here's my ring. Here's my seal. This is my property. I own it. And that's the idea here. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He owns us. And, according to Paul, verse 14, he's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What that means is this. You're going to heaven. Done deal. If you're in Christ, if you're selected before the foundation of the world, and hence you have responded by receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior, however you want to look at it, you're his. You're going to heaven. Until you get to heaven, God has done something for you that is a down payment. The word guarantee literally means down payment or first installment. And that's the Holy Spirit living in you. Remember the night you received Christ and that sense of purpose and joy? And I don't know how much time you spend with the Lord now, but even today as I spent some time in prayer with the Lord, it's just like, oh Lord, this is better than the best high I ever experienced as a heathen. This is better than the best thing I ever purchased in my life, knowing you and that sense of ownership that your Holy Spirit is living and abiding in me. You're getting to heaven, but as a guarantee, as a down payment, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. He's given you the Spirit. When a young couple buys a home, they put a down payment on the home, 5%, 10%. That is a guarantee, first installment, and they're telling the bank, the mortgage company, this is a preview of coming attractions. I'm going to pay on this for the next 30 years. 
What God is saying is he's given you the Holy Spirit so that you get a tiny little, very tiny foretaste in the joy and the hope and the purpose that you have now, a very tiny foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. It's the down payment. Just the beginning. Now, verse 15 to 23 is a prayer, and we're going to obviously close the chapter with this. God's plan is the first part. Paul's prayer that they realize the plan is the second. Now, let's read it together, and then we'll go back over it. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the true God, or that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality, power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's a mouthful. And you know, every time Paul writes, I always say that. When I read, a, you know, Paul has the longest sentence of anyone I've ever read in my life. And, you know, I, I remember studying the writings of John in, in the Greek language and then the writings of Paul. And it's like John knows when to stop a sentence. And Paul, being the scholar that he was, goes from uh, beginning to participle to participle to participle and just hangs all this truth and makes the sentence sometimes like a chapter. And so our problem is when we read it, we often go, I pick up a couple of things, but I don't get the whole thing of what he's saying. So let's go back over it, study it, and make application. Here's what he's saying, basically, and I hope I'm not violating his intention. It seems like the heart of what Paul is saying is this. You are so wealthy in Christ. He has given us so much, so many spiritual blessings. And my prayer, dear God, is that these Ephesians might know your person. They might know your plan. They might know your pleasure. And they might know your power more than ever before. That's to me what it seems like he is saying. Now, now go back to verse 17. Here's the first thing, and there's four things on his prayer list. The first thing he prays for is that they might have spiritual wisdom to know the person of God. Spiritual wisdom to know the person of God. Or in other words, that you might know God better than you do now, better than ever before. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words... My prayer for you, Ephesians, and I will say my prayer for you, Albuquerqueans, is that you might grow in your knowledge of God more than ever before. He give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Did you know that a couple thousand years ago, even 3,000 years ago, the pagans, including the Greek philosophers, including Aristotle, believed that God was unknowable. He was unknowable. He, they spoke about God as this source filling the universe, this power, this pressure, this reason or logos. But they, they, they never saw him as a person, therefore you couldn't ever really know God. So the ancient Greeks, the ancient pagans, were really precursors to modern agnosticism. If there is a God, God is unknowable. Paul is saying, you already know God. I pray you know him better and better, more intimately. So here's the first question I have for you tonight. Do you know him, period? Have you met him? Have you been introduced to Christ personally? You see, we Christians keep harping on this, you need a personal relationship with God. 
And I know people hear that and they go, how can you have a personal relationship with a person you never see or you never hear audibly? Well, it's notice in the revelation of the knowledge of him. God reveals himself to you and to me through this book. Jesus said, Father, I have revealed to them all about you. I've told them all about you. I've revealed your word to them. So listen, God is all about self-disclosure. Did you know that? God isn't hidden. I'm searching for God, somebody once told me. And I said, he's not lost. He, he's not hidden. He has revealed himself through the person of Christ and through the scriptures. You can know him plainly, readily. You can talk to him. You can hear his voice. You can have sweet times of fellowship and intimacy with him. You can find out what he loves, what he likes, what he hates, so that you stay away from what he hates and do what he loves. That's a relationship. Now, that's the good thing about God is he reveals himself to us. Sometimes you meet a person who we say they hold their cards close to their chest. They, they really don't reveal much. They're afraid to really let you in on who they are. They might say, happy to meet you. And, and the conversation is very surface, but not intimate. Not God. God will reveal himself and show himself. What's the last book of the Bible called? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling. Here's Christ in all of his glory. This is what it will be when he comes again. So his first prayer is that we might have spiritual wisdom to know the person of God better. Second thing he prays for in verse 18 is that we might have spiritual enlightenment to know the plan of God. Look at verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see that phrase in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding? You want to know what it literally is? The eyes of your heart. Remember the song we sang at the beginning? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. Sometimes we connect the heart to the emotional part of us and the brain or the mind to the intellectual part of us. The ancients didn't do that. 2,000, 3,000 years ago, the ancients believed that the seat of your thinking power, the very center of your personality, your mind, they refer to it as the heart. Now, here it says the eyes of your understanding, but in the original, the eyes of your heart. You see, they equated the heart with your ability to reason, not feel. They equated your emotion or your ability to feel, not with the heart, but with the intestines. Did you know that? If you have an old King James Version, you read some weird things like, that you might be filled with bowels of tender mercies. And you go, you know, my bowels have had a lot of things, but not tender mercies. <laughs> Maybe tender vittles, but not tender mercies. When Jesus saw the crowd in Matthew 10, it says he had compassion on them. The Greek word splanchna refers to the bowel, the intestine. He felt deep in his gut for them. I'm bringing that up because it's funny to hear even Bible-believing Christians talk about the heart versus the mind. It's not what you believe in your mind as much as what you feel in your heart. No, no, don't look at it with your mind, but your heart. According to the Bible, the heart is the mind. They're synonyms. They mean exactly the same. It's the place where you reason. It's the very center of your personality. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, says the scripture. So he's praying that we would understand deep in our, the innermost part of our being, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling or what is the plan of God for your life. You know, I, I'm convinced that if we did understand the hope of our calling, if we really understood the plan that God has for us in this life, right here, right now, all the way to the day we die, and then what he's going to do as soon as we die and we enter into glory forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven, if we really got the full scope of the hope that we have to look forward to, it would change the way we live. It would certainly change the way we view death. 
somebody that we know who loves Jesus with all their heart, they pass and they go to heaven. And of course, we're going to be sorry for ourselves, right? I mean, we're, we're sorry not for them. We don't go, that poor stiff. I can't believe it. It's so sad. He went to heaven. Oh. Man, he beat me to heaven. Like the little girl walking with grandpa said, Grandpa, if heaven looks this good on the wrong side, what must it look like on the right side? The hope of our calling. That's the second thing he prays for. Now, at the end of verse 18 is the third thing that he prays for. He prays for spiritual insight to know God's pleasure. Now, I know for some of you that doesn't make sense, spiritual insight to know God's pleasure, but follow the text. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Did you see that? It's not our inheritance he's speaking about, his inheritance. Verse 11, Paul speaks about our inheritance. Notice. In whom we also have obtained an inheritance. That's our inheritance. But here he's speaking of the wealth or the inheritance that God has. In other words, you, brother, you, sister, are part of God's wealth. God views you as part of his treasure. So few of us believe that. You remember the story growing up of the prince who was naughty for some reason and was turned into a frog and the only way to break the spell was for a beautiful young princess to come and kiss the frog. And you know the story, the princess came and saw the frog and kissed the frog, imagine, <laughs> turned into a prince. It's a great story. It's a great story if you're the frog. It's not really great if you're the princess at first kissing the lips of a slimy, smelly frog. Yet she did it that she might have the prince. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit kissed the frog. Paid for my sins on the cross. It was very humiliating to stoop that low. But he did it. And you know why he did it? That, that he could say, Skip belongs to me now. Alice belongs to me now. Heather, she's mine. Mike, my property. I put the Holy Spirit guaranteeing that inheritance. They're mine. I say so few Christians believe it. So few believe it, we've even misinterpreted the intent of the scripture. There's a parable Jesus gave. You remember it? He said the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. And when a man discovers it, he sells everything he has that he might buy the field to get the treasure. And we have historically sometimes misinterpreted that to mean it's the believer getting rid of everything to buy Christ. That's not what the parable means. It's Christ giving up everything in heaven to buy the field to get you. You're the treasure. You say, how do you know that? I know that because the Bible says so. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives the key to the parables and he says, the field is the world. When is the last time you bought the world? And let's say you could buy your salvation. What do you have worth salvation? Nothing. We don't buy. We don't earn. Jesus bought the world by his own blood that he might secure the treasure, which is the church. It's his inheritance. Wow. I'm speaking to some people tonight who get down on themselves every day who send themselves messages like, I'm worthless, I'm good for nothing. Careful. You're talking about God's property. You are tampering with something that God thought it's so valuable, I will shed the blood of my only son that that can become part of my treasure and inheritance. You're valuable to him. And let the cross be a reminder of that. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Can you fathom the love of God? I cannot. I cannot. There is a song that when I hear it, I just go, yep, that person's close to capturing it. It's called The Love of God by F.M. Lehman. The love of God is greater far 
than ink or pen could ever tell. It stretches to the furthest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Unfathomable. Do I understand it? Nope. Just like predestination, do I understand it? Nope. Don't care. I enjoy it. It's in my bank book, man. I'm reading the wealth, and I'm considered his treasure. Finally, verse 19, the fourth thing that he prays for is that we might have spiritual understanding to know God's power. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly places, far above principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named, not also in this age, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. There's the new society. The fullness of him who fills, fills all in all. We sometimes marvel at power, man's power, our ability to create power. The space shuttle weighs at liftoff 4.5 million pounds. That's the weight of the space shuttle upon liftoff. The jet engines in the rockets that propel it into space are able to produce seven and a half million tons of thrust. That's power. If you've ever been in Florida to, to watch that thing go off, it's just unbelievable, the sound, the sight. Wow, what power. But now think of the power of the resurrection. How much power does it take to raise somebody who is dead from the dead, more, or, or to get somebody raised from the dead to ascend up into heaven without a jet engine or a pack, <laughs> more. And so Paul is praying these things, Lord, you've already given them so much power. They're in Christ and Christ raised from the dead. I pray that they would see what is theirs in terms of power, in terms of capacity to live the Christian life. Everything you've called them to be and do, they have the power to do. Remember last week I told you about William Randolph Hearst, that he was looking for a painting. He looked all over the world until somebody told him that it had been in his basement for months. That's a lot like Christians. We sing, more love, more power, and God's saying, you got it. It's already yours. Just use it. <laughs> it's yours. You have everything you need in Christ. But Paul is saying, I pray that they'll get it. They'll see it. Okay, that's Ephesians 1. How do we respond to Ephesians 1? Two things, and I'm going to read something to you tonight. Two things to respond to this chapter. Number one, rejoice in the benefits. Rejoice in the benefits. We gave you a list of them last week and tonight. Rejoice in them. You are wealthy. Number two, request understanding. Pray for understanding. Rejoice in the benefits. Request understanding of them. And I would just suggest that you do something tonight. Can I give you some homework? Because I'll do it too. Go home. Go over the chapter briefly, spend five, ten minutes, and go over those spiritual blessings once again. And meditate on what it means to you. And be honest, if up to this point you have to say, hadn't meant anything to me. They're just words that I read in a book and went, oh. Go home and meditate on the spiritual blessings that are yours. And say, Lord, help me to live with this knowledge of what, what is mine in Christ. A man went on a cruise. I did it once. I wasn't really that impressed with it. I was on a boat all the time, not interested. But I went on this cruise. And uh, there was a man who went on not this cruise, but the story read another cruise. He had saved up all of his life savings to go on it. He thought, I'm going to splurge. I've always wanted to see the Mediterranean. He was on the cruise ship. He only had enough money to buy the ticket to get on the cruise ship. 
he didn't have enough money, he thought, to buy the food that would be offered on the cruise ship. So he brought, get this, aboard loaves of bread, peanut butter, jelly, and he made himself peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So here the guests go out to eat this beautiful breakfast, the lines of caviar and all this omelets and lunchtime lobster and steak. And he goes back to his little room, closes the door, and does a little peanut butter sandwich. Like the third day along on this cruise, it's just like driving him nuts because he smells the food and he sees it. And he got us to go back to his hotel room and he's mad. So finally, in desperation, he grabs one of the porters and he says, I'll do anything. I mean, you can charge my credit card, I'll wash dishes, but I am sick of having to eat peanut butter. You see, I could only afford the ticket to buy the cruise, not the food. And the porter smiled, put his arm on the guy and said, you really don't understand this cruise. The food comes with the cruise. <laughs> now, this is almost the end of the cruise, and the guy realizes, what an idiot. It's been mine all along, and I haven't enjoyed it. Please, learn to enjoy your life in Christ. It's not something you endure. You enjoy it, as we said last week. I close with what Eugene Peterson wrote, and then we'll pray. The puzzle, he says, is why so many people live so badly. Not so wickedly, but so inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There's little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out aggressions of timid conformists. Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. Aimless and bored, people amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets any headlines. Let me tell you this as we close. Living this way, Ephesians 1, living this way won't get you any headlines but it will make you really, really happy. Really happy. 